Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. In this conversation, we're going to be talking about two books of the Bible, Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs. Now, what, why the two together, Mike? Uh, we put them together because historically these two have been written by the same author, King Solomon. And they come from that part of the Bible that we've talked about before called the wisdom literature. And much of that literature written in the 10th century BC at the time of King Solomon in the period that followed him, uh, reflecting something of God's wise ways for living. And these are the last two books on that sort of wisdom shelf, as it were, in our Bible library. But two quite different books? Yes, very different and with a very different feel to them. The book of Ecclesiastes, as you come to look at it, frankly, at a first quick read, can feel pretty miserable and pretty damn beat. The Song of Songs, by complete contrast, is nothing short of a fantastic love poem and song sung between two lovers. So a very different feeling, but both of them, in their own ways, tackling some of the the big questions of life. Well, let's start with Ecclesiastes then, and... Give us a little overview. What's the kind of uh, direction we're going in with this? Ecclesiastes, and by the way, um, the word Ecclesiastes means teacher. So this is someone who is trying to teach us something. It's a book about life. And in Ecclesiastes, we're taking on a journey. It's actually a journey from, from birth to death. And in it, we see how human accomplishments at at every different level, whether it might be pleasures or money or love or work, actually, they're all futile unless God is in the midst of it. So it's really this journey through life. What is the point of life? Because you can pour everything into every area, but without God, they are Well, I use the word meaningless. In fact, that's the word that's used in the opening verses. Let me just read it and and make a note on it. The, The book opens with this. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. Now, I'm not sure that's a particularly good word. Uh, to translate the Hebrew, though lots of our English Bibles actually end up using it because meaningless almost has a bit of a philosophical ring to it. And really the Hebrew word here means breath. A breath, a breath, everything in life is just a breath. Now, you know what a breath does. It comes from within you. It's useful. It's important. You know, without it, we wouldn't be conducting this conversation together, would we? Tremendously important. But the minute I've spoken out a word, my breath has gone. And that's really the picture that the writer of Ecclesiastes is doing. It's not so much it is meaningless as it is or even futile, I think one translation has. It's a breath. It's so quick. It's here. 
It's gone. Pleasures, work, life, money, whatever it might be, they can satisfy for the moment. But you know what? They are gone in a breath, aren't they? That was the point I was going to pick up because it sounded like quite a strong statement to kind of imply that life without God is a waste of time. Well, it, it is a strong statement, and he's not saying, you know, it has no value. And likewise, I would say, you know, the life of a non-Christian is not meaningless or without any value. They might contribute lots to their family and to culture. But at the end of the day, it certainly is a breath. It's come and it's gone. And if all you live for it is to live and and to work hard and to bless your family and to be nice to your friends and not to kick the dog and everything else. But at the end of it, if that is the end of it, and if that is all you have lived for, do you know what? Your life has just been a, a breath. So there's an eternal perspective to life. Absolutely. And that's the heart of this book. Because the writer is not really saying all these things are meaningless and useless. His emphasis is all these things are meaningless if lived without God. And I know because I've tried it, he says. And when you live these things, when you go for pleasure or jobs or money or family or whatever it might be, and God is not at the centre of it, then that's when it, it's meaningless. That's when it doesn't gain the full meaning that it could have. And remember, this is part of the wisdom literature that wants us to get the best out of life. So he's saying, in my experience, when I have ever fallen into living life or living areas of life without God, it has seemed so empty. But it's when I've put God into them that then the full meaning and purpose has come. So sort of life on planet Earth isn't the full picture? No, there is absolutely more than this. Now, of course, we don't discover a lot about that until we get on to much later in our bookshelf of the library's books and get to the New Testament, where Jesus makes very plain that this life is not the only life to live, but that there is a new life, a life that never ends to be enjoyed with God forever in his new creation. But here in this book, we're not really looking to life after death. What we're looking at is life before death. And he's really saying, do you know what? There is no real life in anything unless God's in it. But when you bring God into it, stuff that on its own is just stuff, getting up again for work, looking after the kids again is when you bring God into it that it takes on a whole new dimension and that we can experience life before death. Jesus famously said that he came to bring life, life in all its fullness. How does that connect to Ecclesiastes, I wonder? I think he's saying a very similar thing, that, you know, without God there, there is something missing in life. It, it's not saying that life is meaningless or it has no value at all. You know, a person who is, is a non-Christian parent can be good parents and do good things for their kids. No one is suggesting that is not the case. But there is both Jesus and Ecclesiastes saying a whole dimension that opens up 
when God is brought into it, that suddenly you start to see things in different ways. You start to do things in different ways. You follow the manufacturer's manual for running your family or doing your work or whatever it might be or enjoying your pleasure. And when you follow the manufacturer's manual, when you follow the way Jesus wants it to be done, that's when life becomes real life. I suppose, you know, I'm old enough to remember when television was still broadcasting in black and white. And I remember the day when they started introducing colour TV. And it's like, wow! And they no longer had to explain that the snooker player was going to try and pot the green ball. You could see it for yourself. And it was like an utter transformation. Suddenly life looked very different in colour. And I think that's what this book is saying. Without God, all these things, yeah, they're there, you can enjoy them, but they're, they're in black and white. But it's when you invite God into your life, or as Jesus will say later, when you invite him into your life, that life in all its fullness comes and it starts to come in colour and you start to see how it can be and how to get the best out of it and how to see God involved in all of what you do. As I'm getting older, I'm finding I'm saying, where does the time go? And I'm just thinking that because of this eternal perspective, what does it teach us about time? There's a great passage, actually, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, which has an awful lot to say about time. It, it's a beautiful passage. It, it's, it's a passage I've often heard read at weddings, for example. And in fact, it's that beautiful. I think it'd be worth our just taking a couple of minutes to read it. So uh, this is from the uh, Christian Basics Bible based on the New Living Translation. And he writes, for everything, there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh a time to grieve and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to turn away, a time to search and a time to quit searching, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be quiet and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And what I love about that passage is that although the writer has said life is but a, a breath and it's gone, there really is a time for everything in God. And, you know, the Bible often encourages us to make the most of the time that we are given because we don't know what the future holds. Jesus in particular said that we, you know, should use our time always living in the light of the fact that, that he is coming back one day. Paul said, be careful how you live. Don't live like fools because the days are evil. So here's the writer saying that, 
you know, one of the wisest ways of life is learning how to use your time, learning how to know there is a time to build something up and a time to pull it down and to replace it. And one of the wise things that God does is as we come to him and pray and seek him, he he gives us the nudges for how and when to move and, and, and what to do and how to use this most precious of gifts. I think all of us would agree, time. Time can be used wisely, but it's used most wisely when we invite God into it and ask him how we should be using our time. Let's now look at the other book then, Song of Songs. That's also attributed to Solomon. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, in the original Hebrew Bible, uh, the title of that book is, is called Solomon's Song of Songs. And that's why sometimes we find this book in some traditions called Song of Songs, and some church traditions refer to it as the Song of Solomon. So that's just a little explanation if you come across two different titles for this book. Song of Songs, yes, again, written by Solomon, this fantastic love song. The word song keeps coming out, so it's it's a musical, uh, there's a musical element to it. Yes, it, it's a sort of, um, I suppose it's like when we say today a love song, you know, a love song might be sung, but it's also might be spoken. But this really was the best of songs. In fact, the, the very title Song of Songs is a Hebrew way of saying the best of songs. So the Song of Songs means the best song there is. This is the best song there is out there. Why? Because it is about one of the best gifts that God gives to human beings to enjoy, the gift of love. This is a book which I think sometimes people think of is about the bride, the church and, and Christ. Is that right? Yes, that's right. This is a book that really doesn't spare your blushes. It is an incredible celebration of love between a man and a woman. And as such, it, it, it's got some physical and, and intimate details, though one would have to say while they're physical and intimate, they're also delightful and there is nothing sort of unclean or unseemly in this book at all. But in fact, it, it was so earthy, if I can put it that way. And remember, that's what the wisdom literature is meant to be. It, it's taking the wisdom of God and relying, relating it into life. It was so earthy that some people have, have found it difficult to think, oh my goodness, you, you're going to be talking about things like that in the Bible, are you? And so in Judaism, for example, there were many Jews who saw this as an allegory, a, a, a picture whereby the woman represented Israel and God was the man in the story. And in Christianity, where the woman represents the church and the man represents Jesus. So it has often been seen allegorically, symbolically. And I have to admit that, you know, when you look at it like that, there are some powerful pictures there, some powerful expressions. If you, if you imagine the man's words being the words of Jesus over his bride, the church, as it's called in the New Testament, there is some most beautiful things. But is that how it was meant to be read? And my answer is, well, I really don't think so. I think because it comes in the wisdom literature, it really was originally meant to be read as what it is, a 
love song, a piece of romantic poetry full of beautiful pictures and metaphor celebrating and encouraging love between a man and a woman. And if this was written by King Solomon, he had quite a few wives, hundreds of wives, so you'd think he'd know a thing or two about love. Well, he he certainly did. Uh, When you read in the historical accounts, we find that he had something like 700 wives and 300 concubines. So he certainly uh, knew quite a bit about relationships. It's interesting, isn't it, that even with all those wives that he had, which in those days, of course, was a symbolic expression of his power as a king, and he was very wealthy to be able to support them, of course, as well. Despite all those wives, despite all the, let's be blunt, despite all that sexual activity that that would have engaged in, it was almost like he understands that that in itself was not enough. And this song is almost like saying, this is what love is about. And therefore, I think this is a really powerful book by today because we live in a culture in the West where sexual activity between any kind of people is is accepted. It's seen as the norm. It's seen as an okay thing to do. It's seen as a very fulfilling thing to do. But here is a man who had no doubt had plenty of sexual experience, but understood there was a difference between sex and love. And that could be a really powerful challenge for us today. What builds people up, what builds relationship is not sex as such. It is love. And sex, when it is serving the purpose of love to build a relationship, is an incredibly powerful and wonderful gift given from God. And that is really the heart of the message of this book. So how does Song of Songs illustrate that love can be beautiful? I think in the wording that flows from one to another, it's very hard really to sum it up in a quick summary. But what we get through this book is a conversation going backwards and forwards, primarily between the lover and the beloved, but also some friends keep popping up here and there. And I think that in itself, there is this conversation backwards and forwards between the two, which in itself is the heart of love. Love is eager to give, not just to get. Love is interested in you, not just in me. Love is interested in my ensuring the best is drawn out in you, not just that the best comes out in me. So I think even this structure, this conversation, this backwards and forwards between the two speaks of what real love is. But there's expressions in this book as well of unashamed intimacy. Uh, Remember, this is a, a book in the culture of the time that is intimacy between a man and his wife. This is not just a general throw out, have sex with whoever you like type of promotion. So there's a structure, a flow between one and the other. There's this intimacy of language. There's some beautiful poetic language that speaks about what love is and what love does. There's also a good warning, by the way, uh, in the middle of the song, where we're told to don't awaken love before it's time. Don't stir up needlessly feelings, affections, particularly sexual activity before it's time. There's a right place for sexual relationships. 
And the Bible is consistently clear. The right place, the best place for sexual relationship is between one man and one woman in the bond of marriage, there for life, not looking to find anyone else in place of, instead of, in addition to. And that's really the context for this story. And within that context, love is an amazing gift. And we're not to be ashamed of it, this book tells us. The intimacy between a husband and a wife is something to be delighted in, not ashamed of. Now, that has not always been the case in Christian history. There have been seasons when sex has been some seen as something very unclean and, you know, something you only have to do if you really must in order that you can have children and continue the human race. Well, that's not what this book tells us. It tells us it is a gift of delight from God to help to bind two people together in commitment and love. And, and this is such a wonderful story to read. And alongside from what you're saying, the physical aspect of this relationship, there are these conversations. So words are important. Absolutely. And as I said, there's this backwardsing and forwardsing. There, there's words here. And again, you know, we live in a, a culture and as Christians, we, we have to be aware of the culture around us. It's the air we live in and breathe all the time. And the culture around us says that you could sum it up almost as love is sex. Well, I think this book reminds us it's far from that. Love also includes, as you've said, conversation, sharing, saying sweet things to one another, saying beautiful things to one another, telling one another how beautiful they are, how your eyes look gorgeous today. And there's loads of little detail like that. So this is not a Quick, let's have sex. Sorry to be so blunt, but I think we have to be in this culture in which we live today. This is about an intimacy, a care for one another, a conversation that flows between one another and the physical relationship flowing out of that intimacy and oneness. To what extent does Song of Songs also address not just physical love, but spiritual love, if you like? Yeah, I think every aspect of love is included in this letter. Uh, I've perhaps just focused on the one so far, but let's bring it up to today. You know, it, if there's going to be a good relationship, a good marriage, it, it's got to include what's in this book. It's got to include conversation. It's got to include kind words to one another. It's got to include encouragement to one another. It has to include, yes, a, a good, healthy, physical relationship, but it also has to include a spiritual relationship. Remember, this book is in that wisdom section of the Bible. And the whole point of the wisdom section is that without God at the centre of everything, life is, as we saw in the book of Ecclesiastes, a breath. It's meaningless. And that's true in a marriage as well. If, if God isn't at the centre of the marriage, then likewise, it's a breath. There's something profound missing. And that's why you know, it's so good for husbands and wives to do things like not just go to church together on Sunday, but to make sure there are times in their week where they read some of God's work together or where they pray together, where they discuss the sermon together, where they talk about spiritual things, because this is an integral aspect of who we are as human beings. And so the whole of life in this book of Ecclesiastes is one of beautiful sharing and intimacy and backwards and forwards between one another, building a life at every level. 
To what extent does it come to a conclusion, the book? In a sense, I'm not sure it does come to a conclusion. It's slightly open-ended, and I think deliberately. But there are some lovely thoughts that come out towards the end, particularly in Chapter 8, where the Beloved, for example, says, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. Love is as strong as death. That's the overriding message of this book. And it really ends with the beloved saying, come away, my lover. Be like a gazelle or like a young stag or on the spice-laden mountains. There's that invitation to, to go on, to carry on, to go into life together based on the wise counsel that this book gives us of how to build a healthy relationship. That's a very strong statement. Love is as strong as death. It is, isn't it? And of course, you know, I suppose ultimately as Christians, we we see that in the person of the Lord Jesus, where we see God's love demonstrated towards us in that he didn't withhold his only son for us, but let him die on the cross in our place, but then broke out of that death through his resurrection life to show that not only is love as strong as death, actually, when you do love the right way, God's way, it's even more powerful than death. So these two books bring together a lot of wisdom, obviously, because they're part of this wisdom literature. This second one, though, Song of Songs, why would you advise not just to pass it by? Well, because I, I just think it's so rich. And it's so rich, one, because it lets us know that there is a way of engaging in relationship together that can see God's blessing in it. And that relationship is intimate and social and spiritual and sexual, all of them. All of these can have God's blessing on them. And so it would be a, a great verse, a great book rather to, to read for any married couple to, to sort of be a good marriage course, really, you know, spruce up the marriage. Perhaps a good book to read for a couple approaching marriage as well. But even for those of us who aren't married, a great book if we see it in the way that many have seen it over the years as this allegory of the love between Jesus and the church and and to say, is this a reflection of my love? Is this, am I holding anything back? I think that's what this book really says. Guys in marriage, don't hold anything back from one another. Give yourselves totally to one another. And if we could take that then and say, Lord, that's how I want to live my life before you, to give myself totally to you at every aspect and level of my being, because I know that is how you are giving yourself to me, then that would be an incredibly wise word for living. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.